a particular enough form of the language to itself be an extra means for the extension of reportage through poetry and translation. I end up collaborating and happy to do so, since translation, maybe poetry as well, has always involved that kind of thing for me. The collaboration can take a number of forms. At one extreme, I have only to make it possible for the other man to take over. In this case, to set up or simply to encourage a situation in which a man who's never thought of himself as a poet can begin to structure his utterances with a care for phrasing and spacing that drives them toward poetry. Example, Dick Johnny John and I had taped his Seneca version of the thanking prayer that opens all longhouse gatherings and were translating it phrase by phrase. He had decided to write it down himself, to give the translation to his sons, who from oldest to youngest were progressively losing the Seneca language. I could follow his script from where I sat, and the method of punctuation he was using seemed special to me, since in letters and such, he punctuates more or less conventionally. Anyway, I got his punctuation down along with his wording, with which he was taking a lot of time, both in response to my questions and from his desire, as he says, to word it just the way it says there. In setting up the result, I let the periods in his prose version mark the ends of lines, made some vocabulary choices that we'd left hanging, and tried for the rest to keep clear of what was, after all, his poem. Later, I titled, I titled it, Thank You, a poem in 17 parts and wrote a note for it for a magazine called El Corno Implumado, which is one of the noble avant-garde magazines that's tried to do things like this for many years and is now folded. It was being published in Mexico. It's folded because the magazine backed the student protest in, in Mexico um, and saw as an act of poetry the necessity to back the student protest in Mexico and lost, consequently, the uh, support from the Mexican government. And uh, poor Margaret Randall now can't come back in the United States because of stupid laws here and is now isolated in Cuba, can't go back to Mexico either. So it's really kind of terrible, the whole situation. But I throw that in because politics is never far from the whole business. Where it was printed in English and Spanish. This is the first of the 17 sections. Now so many people that are in this place in our meeting place. It starts when two people see each other. They greet each other. Now we greet each other. Now he thought. I will make the earth where some people can walk around. I have created them. Now this, will, now this has happened. We are walking on it. Now this, now, now this time of the day. We give thanks to the earth. This is the way it should be in our minds. Now, the sense that's central to the poetry there is not a kind of poetry that we could speak about otherwise, not a poetry that even line by line is necessarily interesting in what it is from a literary point of view, but as an act of poetry, it involves poetry as a translation of being between people who are right there on the spot. In other words, the translator's job here is to recreate in the act of translation the act of community, which is central to oral poetries. That is, you cannot have a poetry without more than one person. And the Seneca's poetry it takes this as the fact of its linguistic nature, that we share right here and now, and therefore we leave open possibilities. My poetry cannot be translated word by word, he says, because it might change when you and I get together and we like each other. And we might do something a little bit different than what I had in mind. I'll learn that what I thought I wanted to do was rather stupid. So that it is an act, and so the act of translation has to be the act in this particular sense. Even when being more active myself, I would often defer to others in the choice of words, Rothenberg goes on. Take, for example, a set of seven women's dance songs with words composed by 
Avery Jimerson, and translated with help from his wife, Fidelia. Here the procedure was for Avery to record the song, for Fidelia to paraphrase it in English, for the three of us to work out a transcription, and word by word, translation by a process of question and answer. This is where the act of translation is a translation. Only afterwards would I actively come into it to try to work out a poem in English with enough swing to it to return more or less to the area of song. Example, the paraphrase of the sixth song reads, this is, a, this is the paraphrase. Very nice, nice, when our mothers do the ladies dance. Graceful, nice, very nice, when our mothers do the ladies dance. Sounds very much like Gertrude Stein. Um, it doesn't? Sound like Gertrude Stein? No? Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry, we've got to have this translation going on here, too. Um, the, the, um, it sounds like Gertrude Stein to me. Um, the next act, however, is what Gertrude Stein maybe also did, but in other kinds of things like her plays where she had music going on. While the word by word, including the meaningless refrain, reads, now here's the musical version. Hey, hey, yeah, yo, oh, ho, nice, nice, nice it is. When they dance, the ladies dance, our mothers. Guy, you know, way, yeah, hey, yeah, graceful it is. Nice, nice, nice it is. When they dance, the ladies dance, our mothers. Guy, you know, hey, yeah, and it goes on like that over and over again. Now, that they are two different acts of poetry is, first of all, clear that the second one is in a very much the same sense that Pound's mimetic kind of music was closer to the Anglo-Saxon. This one is closer to the act. And it also takes the risk of introducing into English that which we take to be meaningless. And I would say that it is one of the things that is central to poetry, the central thing to poetry as far as I'm concerned, is the risk of introducing a language which is meaningless. That is that every poetic act, as I understand it, runs the risk of destroying poetry of saying something, of doing something because it has not been done before that you will have to say, oh, I am crazy to have done or I am going crazy in doing or I will be crazy if I believe this is so um, or it's going to make somebody else crazy. We're going to have maybe the kind of afterthoughts that Yeats had uh, later on in, in wondering, did those words of mine send those young men out to be shot by the English, which of course they did. I mean, they did, he knew they did. Uh, when he did, put on the Countess uh, Kathleen in Dublin, that spurred revolution. It was a political act, and it had the effect of it. Conacruz O'Brien's been very explicit in showing that Yeats, whether he liked it or not in those days, uh, was a political person and couldn't help it. Um, now, he goes on and talks about other versions of this. He then talks about um, versions of poetry from the Navajo. Now, this is where I'm going to overstep myself and try a performance of something which I cannot do. Uh, and it'll be very brief, I hope. And um, it's a poetry which has as its base a kind of sound structure which is totally meaningless in English, but through which there are words which accumulate in a narrative that perform a ritual in their accumulation and which introduce the possibility for a unification of song and <coughs> narrative in such a way that I don't think has ever been done in English before. Um, it's called The Tenth Horse Song of Frank Mitchell. And here I ask you, if you are interested in this sort of thing, in Stony Brook to, to look at the series of things that we've done there. We've given two versions of the poem, one done by an anthropologist, one by, done by Jerry Rothenberg, with an, an article by Jerry Rothenberg and an article by the pure anthropologist 
coming together from opposite points of contention, one scientific, the other poetic, trying to come together in a kind of communal act, which is also an act of translation, translating science into poetry and poetry into science. Um, and well, we've done Pound's thing there. We've followed his advice, set the text side by side and let people decide for themselves. Rothenberg fully believes, and this is central to the idea of translation, which I'm advancing right here, um, or advertising rather, I'm not advancing, I'm advertising it, um, which is that the text that one comes up with is not to be ever considered definitive. The poet commits the act of hubris when he considers his, poet, his, his version final, because he then betrays, in both senses, he is then the traitor, really the traitor, which is he betrays the nature of the poem, which in this case is fluid. The Seneca would never say there's an authoritative text. By the way, the wonderful study of this that opened everything for us was, of course, um, Alfred Lord, Al Albert Lord's The Singer of Tales, where he told us that we were just dead wrong about Homer and the others when we thought that we, we, had, we owned the line in an act of translation. The poem that was never, could not possibly, of its nature, have been the same two times in a row. It was similar, but it progressively it evolved, and it was a new act every time. And the whole thing about oral poetry that Lord tells us is that if it is not a new act each time, it is not poetry at all. That's of the nature of the experience. All right, here goes. The key to the poem is the sound structure, win yang win, which means a great deal to you, I'm sure. Um, and this plays throughout the thing. Go to her, my son, yin wang. Go to her, my son, yin wing, yin yang. Go to her, my son, in win, and go to her, my son, in win, in win, in yin gang. Because I was the boy raised in the dawn, yin wang. Go to her, my son, in wang, in yin yin gang. And leaving from the hoo hoo house, the blue stones home in gang in wing, go to her, my son in win in win in win gang, and leafing from the root root house, the shining home in wing wing, go to her, my son in wing in in gang, and leafing from the mm, 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 swollen house, my breath has blown in. Go to her, my son, in win, in win, in yang. Go to her, my son, and from the house, if precious cloth we walk upon, in win, in go to her, my son, in win, in win, in gang. With pr pr prayer sticks that are blue, in wing, go to her, my son, win, in wing, in gang. With Feathers that are blue in wing, go to her, my son, in wing, in wing, gang. And with my feathers that are blue, with my spirit horses that are blue, in wing, go to her, my son, in wing, in gang. With my spirit horses that are blue, and dawn and wing, go to her, my son, in wing, in gang. With my spirit horses, blue stone and ring gang, go to her, my son, in wing gang. And with my horses that blue stone and wing gang, with cloth of every kind to draw in them, go and wing gang, go to her, my son, in wing in gang. With jewels of every kind to draw. 
raw in them on and go mm wing gang go to her my son in wing ing gang with horses of every with sheep of every kind to draw in them mm wing gang go to her my son in wing gang in gang and everything that's living to be old and blessed in wing gang then go to her my son my son in wing in in wing gang a cause I am the boy who blisses blesses to be old in gang and go to her my son in wing in gang go to her my son in wing 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 gang uh, I just recommend that you listen to Jerry do it he can do it really well because he's heard them do it a lot and done it very, very well. And here we might emphasize that we are really helpless in presenting this kind of poetry by putting it on the page uh, alone. Uh, we're up against the task in trying to advertise poetry of this sort uh, that basically big publishers aren't interested in it. They're getting interested, thank God, at last in doing it. But the thing that needs really to be done is for it to be performed. To see this on the page is frightful. A lot of people came to me and said, what are you, wise guy? I mean, who are you trying to kid with this sort of thing? Um, I heard Jerry do it, you know? I said, I'm not trying to kid anybody. I love it. It's great. You know, it's, I want to start thinking about poetry another way because of this stuff. And the only thing to do is if I put a little tape inside here, took out maybe 50 pages or something and put a little tape inside there. I'm $5,000 in debt in editing this thing, so I can't quite do it now. But I'm hoping that people will find a way to make it available. And I, I think that's what our job is, to, to work toward that. Thank you. We'll have a lot, about two minutes for questions or comments. If there are any. Sir. Maybe too obvious, but does this, this, inter, this, this interaction that you were talking about between two human beings or more, uh, producing something new each time. This, I'm sure, is a commonplace artist and poet, with whom I learned to other people. But mm -hmm. doesn't it remind you of what physicists have been saying for a few years now, that every time you look at matter, it falls apart, it changes? Completely, completely. In fact, I think that if you really study the question closely, you'll find that the, the whole Heisenberger uh, Heisenberg e indeterminacy principle became part of the imagination of poets a long time ago. And this is what John Cage has been telling us for a long time. Uh, in fact, he has a, a lecture called Lecture on Indeterminacy, where he talks about indeterminacy as part of compositional principle, which I take to be absolutely central to what poetry is. That is indeterminate, that if we know too well where we're going when we get in there, we're in trouble. We're only not in trouble when we put ourselves in trouble. Uh, that series of kind of paradoxes that, that we've got to take the risk and the risk has got to be part of the act. Um, the risk of creation. The risk of creation, right. And I think perfectly right. By the way, I think that the most romantic poetry of the present takes science to be its lead. If, if you look at a poet like Robert Duncan, who openly has called himself a romantic poet from the beginning, he's, his imagination lies in partly in what he's been able to take from people like Whitehead and Schrodinger and Heisenberg and many other scientists. And his, his own poetry is laced, is interlaced with the statements of scientists. He said, in fact, he said openly, I'm, we romantic poets were saved by the fact that science finally was what said what we said. And that 
it, an act of imagination in William Blake that made everybody think he was insane is absolutely commonplace to science now. Gestalt psychology told us things about perception that are absolutely sinful to Blake. Marshall McLuhan introduces his, his notion, his radical notions about media as, as not being a radical thing at all. He begins with a quotation of Blake's Jerusalem. The romantic act drove people insane before it now confirms us that uh, what we called insanity before is maybe the only way through, back to community. There seems to be this arch mm. emerging in our consciousness of the combination of the intellectual and, and the, uh, the emotional uh, mm. coming together in a kind of marriage after they've been long divorced and long pondering. Mm. And uh, mm. I'd just like to mention a book that I found uh, is most unknown and deserves to become less unknown. That's written by a man who covered himself up. It's hard to cover. I think some people will discover it, despite his desperate effort. He died a few months ago, years ago, um, to cover himself up. Uh, and it, uh, he calls himself Preston Carroll. I don't know if anybody knows it. And the book is called The Shining Stranger. Hmm. And uh, it's uh, about a man we all know, lived about 2,000 years ago. He ties it into the theory of life and young and everything. Mm -hmm. And the book is written by a man who not only knows his atomic physics from uh, way back, but also uh, who knows literature and poetry and psychology. And most people are, we have about a toss of three or four people in the world that we know could write it. Uh -huh. And one of them was Robert Oppenheimer. Uh -huh. uh, the other one was, was dead. Another was uh, Albert Einstein who was dead and whom we never knew could write poetry and who did. Mm -hmm. And a couple of others, you know. So I, I wanted to bring that up because right. it's not that's a great thing to know because I mean, like, I think the secret act of poetry is part of science in lots of ways. There's a wonderful thing. One of the founders of cybernetics was Warren S. McCulloch, who just died about uh, two, three, four months ago, um, and a fantastic man in talking about the structure of brain cells and wrote essays like uh, What the Frog's Eye Tells the Frog's Brain and reformed the perceptual psychology altogether. Um, ends his book of essays that are extremely esoteric, most of them um, filled with mathematics that, I, that looks like puzzles to me, that's um, really nonsense to me, um, ends his book with 25 pages of the poetry that he'd been laboring with all his life. And some of it's pretty good. Uh, yeah. I think we'll have to uh, uh, close discussion on this. If you can be available to talk informally sure, later, sure. it would be a great help. I just wanted to say that there may be a little more advertising of this than you know. The Russian service, The Voice of America, is here today, a former very charming reporter. Uh, she's obviously picking up the things on Russian topics, but uh, we're going to make tapes available. And uh, if we had fun with this today, I think what it'll sound like in Moscow in an evening. <laughs> Thank you again. Okay. Uh, Mr. Reedy, would you, would you come up? Uh, Robert Payne will introduce our next speaker, who is George Reedy. About 150 years ago, to be precise, in 1936, I came across a magazine with some translations of Pasternak by George Reavy. Pasternak was completely unknown in English magazines and <coughs> in those days, and he started off with some extremely brilliant translations of Pasternak. And later on, of course, he, he sold his soul to Gogol and translated the whole of Dead Souls. And he did an enormous amount of Russian translations. But he's promised this afternoon to deal entirely objectively and impersonally 
with Pasternak and the translation of Pasternak into English. Could, could I say too that this is the gentleman who introduced Ed Tyshenko to the American public. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say how much I regret not having been able to attend sessions yesterday and today as a result of a virus which began coming over me on Saturday until I collapsed on Monday. Um, I also notice how the time is running away and how tired we all are. I'm not going to spread myself the way I originally intended. I'm going to abbreviate what I want to say. Um, now, originally I never thought I would be a translator, become a translator, or translate at all. Uh, I was primarily interested in poetry and literature, and um, uh, began writing and being published myself. But then, knowing French, and English, I mean, and uh, Russian, I uh, began to delve at an early period into French and uh, Russian poets. Now, here is what I might call a certain ear for the rhythm of one's age. I mean, the poets, uh, the Russian poets I began delving into while still at college were Mayakovsky, Yesenin and Pasternak. And this was around about 1928, which a very long time ago. And by uh, 1930, I'd written a, an essay called First Essay Towards Boris Pasternak, which was published at that time uh, in experiment. Uh, but I didn't deal only with Pasternak. I talked about Pasternak, Yesenian, and Mayakovsky. In France, what attracted me soon after was the poetry of uh, uh, Eloi, Paul Eloi. And I was very happily, when I went to Paris, I met him. And I was very happy to publish a small anthology of his selected poems in 1936 called Thorns of Thunder. Um, which is really one of the books I've uh, helped to produce, which perhaps pleases me most because of all the circumstances attending. Uh, not only did I select the Loire, but also I brought in other translators, and it was a composite book of various translators, including Samuel Beckett, David Gascoigne, and Jolas and others, and uh, Max Ernst did a jacket cover for it, and Picasso a frontispiece. And what greater reward could there be for a translator but that the poet Eloire should present me with an original Picasso, a drawing of the Rose Period. Now I think nothing really, no reward could exceed that, perhaps. Um, now. The Russian front, as I began living in Paris after Cambridge, 1930 or 31 onwards, I began 
meeting not only Russians of the uh, literary Russians of the emigre, emigres, but like Remizov and um, uh, writers, prose writers like that, but also visiting Soviet writers of the new generation, the generation that come up after the 1920s, after the revolution, Babel, Ivanov, and eventually in 1935, I met Pasternak in Paris for a short while. Uh, but I had, since 31, started a correspondence with him because I sent him my essay and he replied. So that was a very interesting phenomenon. So I was being drawn into this peculiar uh, association of with writers, although the term did not exist then, but they were, in a sense, beyond the Iron Curtain, uh, which a curtain which we especially felt after the purges of 36, 37, 38, uh, when I did not even dare to write to Pasternak at that time. And I remember having translated a poem of his in 1933, which was published in Adelphi in London, and I sent him a copy of that. I was innocent enough at the time to think it would get to him, but the Adelphi contained an article on Trotsky, so the copy was returned to me with a censor's stamp. Well, that was nice to me. I knew it had been censored. It wasn't just lost anywhere. It was returned. Um, while I was having this temperature over the weekend, an image suddenly struck me. It might have been a nightmare. I said, here, yeah, everybody's already talked about the necessity for poetry, the art of, I mean, of translating, the art of translating the necessity, translating the bridges, etc., etc., etc. And I suddenly said, what about the madness of translation? What about this thing of seeing a body, a work there, and suddenly trying to get into it and surrendering oneself to it and scrambling into it and a whole process of, of I think, somebody called it transposition and transformation. Well, uh, it's a kind of dream process, the process of surrendering oneself to a large work for weeks, days, weeks, hours, months at a time, and being at the disposal of this foreign body. Now, that needs a lot of thought, because it isn't every foreign body one wants to surrender to necessarily. One has to, obviously, pick and choose and have a feeling for it. Well, I must say, I certainly did have a feeling from the beginning for Markovsky, Yesenian, and Pasternak, and Delois, among others. And uh, as a young man, I rushed in where angels feared to tread. I mean, at, what is it, at the age of 22, I suddenly translated four Pasternak poems. Well, I mean, uh, I've revised them since, but still. Uh, that is, but still, it is a kind of this thing 
possesses one, it draws one in. But I still didn't think of myself as a, necessarily as a translator. But gradually one got more and more involved. There are translations that are pushed on one, translations which possess one, translations which sometimes out of necessity one accepts to do. Um, but this ear, the atmosphere of the age, this generation, the idea of the contemporary poet. Now, with foreign writers, there's usually, unless one is living in that particular country, say one's living in Paris, one uh, sort of au courant once, uh, you know, for any length of time, one is au courant once of who's coming up and what interests you and so on. But from Russia, at that time especially, it took some years, maybe in a gap of five, 10, or even 15 years. So I first fell for the poets of a no slightly older generation, let's say, the poets who were born in the 90s, like Pasternak, Mayakovsky, and Yesenian. Um, so one develops this personal involvement in certain poets whose way of using language, whose rhythms, whose um, images, whose metaphors, for some reason, uh, infect one. And uh, uh, in the end, you cannot somehow do without them, and you have to do something about them, whether to write about them or to translate them. Um, I tended to digress much longer, but in view of the time, I'm coming to Pasternak especially. Uh, when one says translating Pasternak, the question is, I think, which Pasternak? Uh, there are several Pasternaks. There is the uh, poet, and there is the prose writer. That is one division. The other division is the early Pasternak and the later Pasternak. Uh, there are, of course, one goes into it more closely and meticulously. There are many more stages of development and so on, four or five. But uh, I would say the main stages in Pasternak's writing were the early stage, which culminates in System My Life and the themes and variations. That's 1922-23. I mean, when those books were published. And uh, then he's already, both those books were actually written uh, as from about 1916 onwards, I say there was still the, the old Russia and then the revolution and so on. And they were published already when, after the end of the Civil War. But then we have a period of Pasternak's adaptation to the new life that is springing up life of Soviet Russia. And there are two stages of that. One is the um, Pasternak in the 20s, when he's still writing in his dynamic 
style, uh, where the verb plays such an important part, uh, but where he's trying to deal with, let's say, revolutionary themes, as in uh, the, the long poem Schmidt, um, Lieutenant Schmidt, and uh, the poem uh, The Year 1905, which is a sort of retrospective poem, which has, indeed, uh, some relation to Zhivago, in a sense, 